Is it okay to make bad choices? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Bill Glaude. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Bill Glaude. Bill is Senior Program Officer at the Institute for Humane Studies. He's responsible for providing resources to aid the research and career development of current and aspiring faculty in the humanities. He has published articles in Southern Journal of Philosophy, Social Theory and Practice, and ETMP, among other outlets. He received his PhD in philosophy from Tulane University, and his main research interest is whether paternalism, be it the coercive or nudge variety, is ever justified or legitimate. Bill also published a book titled Why It's Okay to Make Bad Choices, and that will form the basis of most of our conversation today. Bill, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me on. We're happy to have you on, Bill. So we frame each episode around a question and just go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, is it okay to make bad choices? So we're going to have fun exploring what you mean by that, your book, what you mean by these bad choices, why they're okay, and so on. But first, I think we should just clarify one thing, because we're going to be using the term the whole conversation. When we talk about a, quote, bad choice, what do you mean by that? That's a a great question. That's kind of uh, how I frame the book. Uh, So there's a a lot of different uh, ways of um, of attacking that kind of question. And actually, I'm going to refer to what I write in the the introduction just to sort of parse out the different senses of bad. Um, So... uh, Here's here's what I'm uh, basically getting at. Um, I, I think that uh, it's okay to make bad choices when you and others can learn from them and they don't cause you the major types of harms that concern paternalists. We'll get to that issue in a little bit. Uh, it's also okay to make bad choices since we can't assume that they are actually, quote, bad when evaluated in context. A lot of choices which are called bad may not necessarily be so. Um, but some choices maybe by all accounts are actually bad. And then what I argue is it may be okay to have the freedom to make even strongly bad choices because it's not okay for people to stop you from making them, uh, either if you want this freedom for your choices or if having this freedom is a significant conception of your identity. Um, I also argue that it's okay to have the freedom to make even really bad choices uh, if it's not okay for people to assume that you are fine with coercive paternalism uh, by not already rejecting the rationale for it. Uh, we'll, again, we'll probably get into some of these issues uh, later on. Uh, uh, also, it's okay to have the freedom to make bad choices if they are genuinely your choices and not because of some kind of distorting cognitive or motivational biases, uh, that, the correcting uh, which is not readily under your awareness or control. Um, I have two more of these. It's okay to have the freedom to make bad choices if allowing such freedom does not impose undue costs on others uh, without their consent. And then finally, it's okay to have the freedom to make bad choices if uh, restricting such freedom would raise undue costs or harms uh, uh, to others uh, or or to those that we aim to benefit. So that's kind of uh, some different ways in which Uh, I I think it's okay to make bad choices. Some of it has to do with the choices not actually being bad. Some of it has to do with, okay, well, the choices actually are bad, but maybe uh, people should still have the freedom to make them. Great. And you're absolutely right. We'll dive into each of those a a little bit later. Before we move on, though, I just, you know, I I do want to ask you, 
a little bit of like a more of a personal interest question. So, so what made you personally so interested in the question of people, cho- people's choices, you know, like what, what, and especially why other people have honestly an, an opinion about other pe- people's choices or, or why they even try to prevent other people from making choices. Just, I, I, I'm just curious to know what made you so interested in this topic? Has this always been something you're interested in? And was there an event or something that made you say, you know what, I really want to zone my thinking in on this. I'm, I'm just curious. I don't know if it was an, a, a particular event or anything autobiographical. Um, I did write my dissertation on this topic, so there's sort of that proximate uh, reason why I might still be interested in doing it. But I think what really motivated me in the first place was just I, I feel like the topic of paternalism uh, is at the intersection of a lot of different interesting um, strands of, of inquiry. So, uh, you know, it has to do with the degree to which people have free will. It has to do with the degree to which we can be one another's bosses, if at all, Uh, the degree to which the state can play a role uh, as opposed to maybe uh, other kinds of institutions or just even personal relationships. So um, I think that that's kind of what um, uh, brought me to the question. And also, I just sort of had this, you know, I've always sort of been uh, a classical liberal libertarian sort of on a gut level uh, before I really even had any, you know, kind of philosophical insight to uh, you know, maybe why that, uh, you know, what, what, would, what would rationalize if it were, if it's a rationalization, that gut feeling. Um, but always, it always kind of just struck me as weird that we might have, it might be permissible to tell somebody else what to do for their own good, as opposed to maybe, you know, imposing some kind of coercive authority uh, in order to settle conflicts or some kind of interpersonal issue where it's like, we need to have like a judge deciding what the issue is here so that we can get along and live our own lives as we see fit. Uh, and the interesting thing about paternalism is that uh, the argument for, you know, I think, some of the more sophisticated defenders of paternalism is that, well, we can do that even for a, a person's own good, even for a competent adult, somebody who is making free choices, but uh, choices that for this or that reason are considered bad ones, we can intervene, we can stop them from doing that. And that always kind of, you know, made me wonder, like, that, like, that just seems weird to me, at least, um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of just what has motivated me to explore this topic uh, throughout my uh, my adult life so far. Yeah, that's very interesting. And a quick, quick follow-up to that then, too. Like, you know, obviously people will, will disagree with the points you make in the book, so they're going to be interested in either countering your arguments or thinking about them as a thought experiment, and they, they would be interested in reading the book, I would hope. But you can also, you know, j- just for the point about you said this sort of like gut feeling libertarian classical liberal attitude, you can almost picture also someone reading the title of your book and saying, you know, of course I should be free to do whatever I want. And then they, they don't even read the book in sort of that quote, rugged individualist way that you actually noted in the intro of your book. So I kind of just wanted to get your thoughts on if someone is even already convinced on that sort of gut level of that sort of attitude, yeah, of course, it's, it's okay to make bad choices. What do you think they also get out of the book, too, and the point of you fleshing out these arguments? I, I take it you still think it's important to challenge yourself, even if one would agree with the title, right? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I think the title is maybe kind of cheekily vague, because it's like, well, you know, is it what, what, what is a bad choice, right? And so, uh, you know, I do try to be clear about what I, what I mean. Uh, on that topic. But, you know, I, I'm certainly not trying to p- preach to the choir. Um, I know that there are, you know, folks in, in our classical liberal orbit who maybe are like, of course, that's that's obvious. But the audience I'm really trying to reach is, um, you know, somebody who might not have an informed opinion on it yet, who maybe hasn't given it much thought or is still on the fence or whatever. 
so, uh, and actually that's kind of in the spirit of this uh, Rutledge series, the Why It's Okay series. Uh, it's, it's really meant for a general audience uh, and it's meant to defend kinds of things that maybe, uh, you know, we classical liberals tend to like, but um, maybe is not all that popular in, in, in a wider audience. So I, I think that, you know, even more generally, at least maybe in, a, in an American context, uh, there is sort of that rugged individualism. It's like, don't tread on me, right? It's, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want and learn from my mistakes and all that. But I think that's, um, again, I think it's kind of a gut level thing for many folks, even those who aren't classical liberal. Um, and when you really, you know, when push comes to shove, it's like, well, okay, you know, it's like, don't tread on me, but we should ban smoke, right? So I don't think people's thoughts in a lot of cases are, are necessarily that consistent, right? It's like, uh, you know, on an, an abstract level, yeah, people should be free to do what they want, but, you know, there should be no drugs, there should be no cigarettes, uh, there should be, you know, no no liquor laws, no, no liquor sold on Sunday, you know, and, and so there's sort of this, uh, again, maybe from, uh, in a more American context, through sort of this uh, tension between, uh, you know, that, that latent individualism, uh, but also sort of that, um, you know, uh, uh, idea that, well, <laughs> there, there's certain things that just cross the line. And, then, you know, even if it's just, you know, the, the harm largely falls on the individual who chooses to do those bad things, we should still not allow them. Right, right, exactly. And actually, I think that ties into something you say in the conclusion of your book, too, which is, like you said, you want to be clear to your audience, right, is that, you know, you you didn't name the book why it's always okay to make bad choices. You're just starting with the general point, look, why it's okay to make bad choices, period. And then you then you explain the whole thing in your book and your argument, right? Right, right. I'm not defending nihilism. <laughs> right, there we go. And I think that's actually a good thing to get uh, out of the way up front for context. And and of course, as I always say, you know, I'm going to get into some questions here, listeners. But like, I mean, we do encourage you to check out Bill's book. There's no way we can cover everything in an hour. So we're just going to trace a lot of the, the points that it makes. But there's obviously a lot more in there. And, and one more question before we jump right into some specific points about the book, Bill. I, I just want to make sure we, there's another context setting point here. And I want to make uh, you know, the distinction in our conversation here between what you define in the book as sort of like a coercive paternalism and a libertarian, quote unquote, paternalism. And sometimes you say, you know, it's just easier to say, look, let's just refer to that as paternalism in the course of sense. And then on the latter part, just like nudging. So can can you define those two for me and explain what you mean? Because I know they'll come up as we go through this. So what's the difference between, uh, you know, like you said, paternalism and nudging? Yeah, great question. And uh, I think it's one that needs clarification. I hopefully I, I, I do uh, try to make that uh, clear in, in the book. But uh, I, I think in the last 15 years, especially when people hear the term paternalism, they probably are more familiar with nudging or libertarian paternalism. I'm using the terms uh, loosely, but uh, combined for, for now. Um, and the distinction here is that uh, coercive paternalism so not nudging, but coercive paternalism uh, is about uh, basically limiting people's options, limiting their freedom of choice. So uh, we're going to make a law that you cannot um, buy cigarettes, right? That would be an example of coercive paternalism, like you know, either through direct physical interference or the threat of interference or the, Ill- the sheer illegality of the action, uh, we're going to make it, uh, if not impossible, at least a lot more difficult for you to exercise this freedom. So that would be coercive paternalism. That's more of the focus uh, in, of, of this book. Um, libertarian paternalism, as so-called libertarian paternalism or nudging, uh, is not so much about limiting choices. The, the, your freedom of choice is retained, but um, 
your um, the, 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 basically the architecture or the environment in which you can choose is uh, altered or manipulated in such a way that you tend to then make uh, better choices, quote, better choices, the, the kinds of choices that um, the, um, the nudger intends you to make. So an example of that would be, okay, well, um, uh, the, the classic example is the cafeteria one where it's like, okay, well, people uh, often just reach for the food that's in front of them. So uh, if we want people to eat healthier, uh, we'll put the healthy food sort of at eye level, make it easier to reach, and we'll put all the fatty uh, and, and, and dessert-like foods, you know, out of reach or, or harder to reach. Uh, and people tend to naturally just get what, whatever is in front of them. Or we'll give people smaller plates, so they'll, they'll, they'll uh, you know, give themselves smaller portions, uh, things like that. So that is not really coercing them. Like if you still want to get the cake or the fatty food or whatever, you're free to do so. It just might be slightly uh, costlier, you know, in, in terms of just having to reach farther for it or look for it or things like that. Um, but it's not coercive, uh, at least, well, there's some dispute about this, but, you know, let's just, for now, I'll just say it's not coercive in the sense that you're just barred outright from doing it. Right. right? Uh, so the idea there is it's sort of taking, um, taking uh, advantage, as it were, of people's framing uh, biases and their status quo biases and just sort of like, okay, what they do uh, is often unconscious or just not, they're not readily aware of it. Uh, And so I I don't really focus on that specific element of paternalism in the the book. I actually have written about it elsewhere, um, but uh, in the interest of space, uh, I I focus more on coercive paternalism. Right. And and just before we jump into that coercive paternalism, the arguments, just quick follow up to that, though, as as you were sort of alluding to there, it sounds like you still think that there is, um, you know, a, a discussion to be had for when nudging is like ethical or not as well. Maybe that's a whole different book, but I just want to stop there and make that point that, um, you know, a lot back to that sort of, you know, um, you know, for example, that rugged individualist person who might be just saying, hey, as long as coercion is not used, whether it be the state or the law or something that's forcing you, you know, all else is fair game. But to me, it sounds like you you don't think it's that cut and dry either, right? There might be something to be said about uh, issues that, especially ethical ones that come along with nudging. Like, for example, if if media or somebody giving information is omitting something or framing something a certain way, you know, th- there's probably a whole discussion that could be had there, like I said, on another day, perhaps. But I, but I think it's still important to note that that's not cut and dry either, right? Yeah, that, you're right. Yeah. All right, well, let's 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 jump in here and, and get into a couple of the points in the book. And, and as I said, listeners, we definitely encourage you to, to, to pick this up. I'm just going to trace the main pillars of the book. So, Bill, let's get into your criteria for when it's okay to make these bad choices, as you said. So I'm going to throw the first one at you that you listed uh, when you were going through the order at the beginning of our chat here. You say it's okay to make bad choices when they don't cause you the major types of harms that concern paternalists. So flesh that out for me. What did you mean by that? What does your first chapter cover? So, uh, yeah, I go into this a little bit. I I think that um, what really concerns uh, defenders of paternalism is not just any little harm that we do. So like getting a bad haircut or eating too much candy or, you know, um, even getting into maybe a questionable relationship. Um, those aren't the, really the kinds of uh, territory that paternalists uh, are, are concerned with. Uh, I think they're more concerned with uh, the kinds of harms that are, uh, I, you know, I go into uh, sort of, I think, two of the three criteria that might um, make a harm uh, subject to paternalistic intervention. And that would be uh, the severity of the harm, the immediacy of the harm, and the irreversibility of the harm. 
Okay, so maybe like the uh, the limit case here would be somebody who wants to just like whimsically commit suicide. That 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 covers all three. It's like it's severe. You're ending your life. It's immediate. Like you can't, t- you know, you, 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 the, the the harms aren't delayed. You don't have time to sort of uh, maybe mitigate their uh, their eventuation. And it's irreversible. You can't take back uh, death. Once you're dead, you're you're dead. So um, I think that it's really those kinds of harms that uh, paternalists are more concerned with. But things like, you know, getting a bad haircut, listening to rock music too loud, they don't really, you know, th- that's not really the concern of, of, of uh, paternalists. It's not about like, you know, like every little uh, thing that you might uh, do uh, that, that could be considered a bad choice. So, so, so all that to say it is, is your main argument then for our listeners that it's okay to make these bad choices because th- at the end of the day, they're not even in that realm of concern for the people who be paternalistic anyway. So, so there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Even paternalists are like, all right, you're, you know, that's part of life. We do that. You know, we're human, we're flawed, whatever. Uh, we're, we're not going to like send the cops after you if you had too many ice cream sundays. Right. Exactly. Fair enough. Okay. Well, let's, let's move on to the, the, the next one then. So you say it's okay to make bad choices since we can't assume that they are actually bad especially when evaluated in context. So there's actually like two parts there that I think are very interesting, you know, buried in that one statement, which is number one, we can't assume they are actually bad, full stop. And then there's the discussion of context. So if you could flesh that out, that'd be interesting. Yeah, so uh, I'll just take smoking as my paradigm example because that's one that paternalists tend not to like. It's like, you know, we shouldn't have smoking. Um, And then so in my chapter two, I sort of go into some this isn't the entirety of chapter two, but by way of example, uh, you know, I explore a couple of uh, sort of case studies about, you know, maybe why smoking is actually perfectly fine as part of a person's life. Uh, So I use the example of uh, badly off Bob, who uh, his life is just he's just it's a really bad he's in really bad shape. You know, he lives in a really poor, remote sort of part of the country. Uh, he doesn't seem to have any real options, you know, for his career, for advancement or for things like that. And one of the things he does is smoke menthols. Um, he can afford a pack of menthols. Uh, and that actually is pretty much what makes his day. So in some ways, this is kind of a depressing story. It's like, well, why are we celebrating smoking? Why, why don't we make his life better? And it's like, well, if we couldn't, if there are ways in which we can make his life better, such that he would not be so inclined to smoke, maybe so, but that's not where he is. And so in that particular context, maybe smoking makes sense for him. Maybe that's the thing that he can look forward to or at least uh, relieve some of his stress. Uh, And then I use another example of a person who's really successful. uh, And she uh, smokes uh, as sort of a way to meet other people. Uh, She tends to find that that fellow smokers sort of fit her personality, uh, the kind of people that she wants to hang out with. Uh, And she also is planning to quit smoking at some point in the future. Um, you know, and she's kind of buying time for when maybe there are uh, better medical uh, ways of, of mitigating any harms that she might cause herself. Uh, and so basically all of this is just a way of, of exploring uh, why, uh, you know, it, it's it, it's simplistic to say, oh, smoking is bad, full stop. Uh, maybe smoking is bad for some people, but we have to explore the context of their lives. Uh, so that's kind of one way in which I, uh, I look at the context. And then uh, another part of that chapter you know, I talk about uh, why people might um, make decisions that look uh, impulsive or, or, or that look like they deviate from the, those people's own uh, settled science kinds of preferences. Uh, sort of the example of the guy who orders um, dessert when he said he wasn't going to order dessert. Um, there could be all kinds of reasons why he changes his mind or, uh, or uh, quote, relapses. 
Uh, and and we, we can't just sort of say, okay, well, this choice is bad. Like there, there's some kind of intrinsic badness to it. Uh, we have to sort of look at the wider context. Um, that, that, that's a little bit uh, vague, but uh, I go into more detail in the book. Yeah, you know, of course, but I think that does still make sense, even at a high level, right? Like, like you said, like when you kind of weigh those costs and those benefits, like I don't, you know, I don't want to be too, like flippant about it, but it's true. You can, one can even say, if, for, for whatever reason, if we actually evaluate the whole context, that maybe smoking was actually a good choice for someone, as you said, right? Like that, you can actually see how that could actually be an argument. I, you know, I can say this as an ex-smoker. I smoked for many years. I, I quit about ten years ago, but I, I don't regret having smoked. I, I enjoyed it very much, and uh, I just I reached a point in my life where I didn't need to do it anymore. Right. So yeah. you know, I know that's anecdotal, but I, I feel like there's probably millions of other stories uh, that are comparable there. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I and I've always said actually that I think it'd be interesting one day to maybe do an episode on smoking in general because I think there's a case to be made. It's been over demonized by a lot of people, and uh, and you know we can have an adult conversation around tobacco just like we have in marijuana in Canada now, for instance. But oh but, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. And you know, honestly, nicotine is is you know tobacco cigarettes are, are are pretty bad. Like there are other ways to take in nicotine that are much better. Um, but that being all that being said. Um, that just goes to show that there are uh, lots of options out there for how people may wish to alter their consciousness. Absolutely. I think we get one more of the, the pillars in before our break, actually. So you say it's okay to make bad choices because it's not okay for people to stop you from making them when it's a significant point for your identity or something very personal and so on and so forth. So, so, so what's going on in that argument? Yeah. So this was kind of the crux of my dissertation. I, I, I was like, I, you know, living or dying by, <laughs> by this argument. Uh, but basically the idea here is, okay, well, you know, even whether there are objectively bad things or if ultimately uh, things are bad uh, insofar as they deviate from a person's own informed preferences, so it's more uh, of a subjective criterion for badness. Uh, I, I say we're, regardless of that, uh, there may be uh, folks who uh, would like to have the freedom to make even what by their own lights are bad choices because that enhances the value of them making the right choice by their own lights, um, if that makes any sense. So it's kind of like this counterfactual uh, test where it's like, okay, well, the fact that I, I'm doing the right thing is even more valuable because I had the freedom to do the, the bad thing. Uh, as opposed to I that that freedom being uh, limited or or, or or just completely uh, I did you know let cool I'm, I'm not coerced to, I'm coerced to not make to, to to make the bad choice so um, that that's kind of uh, what's what's going on there it's sort of uh, you know it, it has sort of a maybe an autonomy uh, flavored uh, approach where it's just like um, freedom is enhanced. The value of freedom, uh, at least in some people's eyes, is enhanced uh, when they could have done the bad thing but chose not to do so. Um, so there's like an element of stoicism maybe to it, but uh, just I, I think in some ways um, uh, for, for those who really want to uh, focus on their autonomy and on their, uh, their freedom of choice, um, doing the good thing when they could have done otherwise. Um, I think I, I think I said that like five different ways. <laughs> no, no, that makes a lot of sense, though. I think I think it's a good point. And actually, you know, that, that takes us right about the time where it'd be a good place to take a break. So, so we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Bill Glaude today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. 
As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Ben Hobbs, Christopher McDonald, and Daniel Beer. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Bill Glaude today. So, Bill, I think the first half was great. We sort of provided some context for our conversation today and started getting into your arguments and the different pillars of your arguments as to why it's okay to make bad choices. So let's jump right in and continue down that line. So another one of your arguments that you make in your book, it's okay to make bad choices because it's not okay for people to assume you are good with coercive paternalism just because you haven't already rejected it. So what's going on there? Yeah, so um, in some ways, I think this is like the crux of my argument because it doesn't apply just to uh, paternalism, but to, to anything really, ultimately. Uh, so I think that there's often this um, subtle but important distinction that's conflated in the literature, and that's whether um, – this has to do with the reasons that somebody might have. Uh, you know, ultimately, I think that there there has to be coercion um, for, to some degree. If we're going to have enforceable claim rights against each other, then there has to be the threat of coercion if we deviate from respecting those rights. So, um, uh, but there's this distinction uh, between uh, when it comes to coercion uh, and how to justify it. Uh, between the reasons that people uh, have have decisive reason to accept versus uh, reasons that they lack uh, decisive reason to reject. Um, And this gets gets us a little into the weeds. It would be clearer in the book, but uh, really uh, my point there is that uh, I think a lot of defenders of paternalism would say, okay, Bill, that argument that you gave in the previous chapter of people who really don't just don't like paternalism, they, they reject it, they want to be free, they want to be autonomous uh, to this nth degree, uh, that's fine. We'll exclude them. We won't coerce them. We'll just coerce the rest of the people who maybe just don't have an opinion on the matter or who haven't thought about it. And I think that's still wrong. <laughs> I think that's still wrong because um, those people, just the, the fact that, they, that simply because they lack reason to reject the rationale for paternalism doesn't mean that they now have decisive reason to accept the rationale for paternalism. And so uh, we can't just jump in and go, okay, well, we're going to coerce you uh, simply because you haven't uh, thought about it or, or, or whatever. I think that's moving too quickly. And I think that that lesson applies not just to paternalism, but to any kind of intervention, any kind of coercive um, uh, infringement, um, because, uh, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, I think a liberal uh, democracy is about uh, respecting people's reasons and values. And you can't just coerce them simply because uh, they don't already have like some, uh, you know, uh, arrows in their quiver ready to shoot down the rationale for, for coercing them. I think that there's a, there's a, a, a steeper um, burden uh, of justification. And that means like you really have to uh, you say like, okay, the reason that you are subject to this coercive authority or this coercion is because you yourself uh, would um, uh, w- would endorse it uh, if, if informed. Uh, you know, otherwise, I, I I worry that we're cat- catching people off guard, right? Right. So that's kind of the the, the issue there. Right. Yeah. And I think, as you said, there's a lot of gray area in this idea of like implicit or, or even sort of co- complicit consent, right? Like, as you said, just because someone's not rejecting something outright, whether either by saying no or reasoning to it, um, you know, we can't just assume uh, they're, they're okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I don't really go into consent as much as sort of the, the structure of the reasons involved, but I think that there's a, a parallel there where, you know, I think a lot of the, uh, the arguments for tacit consent are embarrassingly bad, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> 
you know, Hume goes into this a lot. He has fun with this, but it, it's like, yeah, you know, um, we have to be careful when we build so much into consent or build, uh, you know, into what a person has decisive reason to do where it turns out it's not really that person we're talking about anymore. It's the person who wants to, uh, sort of build, build in those, uh, those considerations and maybe they don't exist. Yeah. No, like speaking of embarrassing, bad arguments, like uh, Thomas Paine, someone I actually enjoy reading and he's years ago, he's the person that got me into like a, a lot of these other thinkers that I really enjoyed. But, uh, I think, um, one of his arguments was that you can't just pass an authority down to a next generation, like a government, for example, because, Hey, like you can't, you can't just have the sort of idea that it's implied that, you know, one generation can pass a type of rule to another. And then he, on the next page or two later, at some point he says, well, then what about a democratic government or a public that doesn't get overthrown? He's like, well, we can assume because people actually don't go and overthrow it because it's a republic. They're fine with it. Anyway, that's why republic is fine. I'm like, ah, that's that's one of those embarrassingly bad arguments. I'll right. tell you that right now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and moving on to the next one here, you say um, it's OK to make bad choices. And I like this one if they are genuinely your choices. Now, again, that's one of those points where someone might say, yeah, it makes sense, let's move on. But there's a couple things to unpack there for sure as you do. So why don't you lay that out for us? Yeah, well, you know, there, there's genuinely is doing a lot of heavy lifting here. And, you know, there's been a cottage industry in the last couple of decades with behavioral psychology, behavioral economics, behavioral law and economics, where it's like, look how stupid we are. You know, look how, you know, we're just... Um, you know, there's all these bells and whistles in our monkey brains, and we are, uh, you know, we, we are depart so significantly from the uh, homo economicus, the uh, you know, classically rat, perfectly rational person. Uh, and so this chapter, uh, I don't really, it's it's really, I do a gloss on things. You know, there's nothing really new here, but it's basically like there's all kinds of ways in which, you know, maybe what we do is not uh, rational according to homo economicus standards. And that's okay. <laughs> that's okay because uh, there are ways in which choices can be genuinely our own, precisely because we are, um, you know, limited in our knowledge. We're limited in our motivational ability and things like that. So um, again, like nothing, nothing really uh, new in the chapter. Uh, I, I just, you know, survey some of the uh, commonly cited, um, you know, cognitive biases, people's framing effects. Uh, for instance, so, so I'll just use an example there. Uh, so, the, you know, a commonly cited example is, okay, well, the way you frame something uh, can make it, you know, it shouldn't make a difference in a person's um, uh, decision making, uh, but it so often does. So, uh, you know, a doctor might tell a patient, okay, well, uh, this, uh, this surgery uh, will give you a, a nine in 10 chance of, of survival. Um and, uh, you know, if the doctor frames it that way, somebody's maybe more likely elects to take the surgery as opposed to if the doctor says the surgery will give you a one in 10 chance of dying. Um, right. Now, those two statements uh, are logically equivalent, right? So why should it make such a big difference in how people decide? Shouldn't they, they just decide based on, you know, the, the meaning of the sentences? But um, one of the... Uh, you know, one of the features of uh, natural language users is that we don't think uh, in that strict sort of logical terms. We, we, we fixate on uh, concepts. We fixate on um, how things are framed to us. So if the doctor comes to you and says, you know, he's framing it in terms of survival, um, you, you, you might fixate on that and say, okay, well, this surgery makes sense. Uh, but if they, you know, frame it in terms of the risks of death, you might say, okay, well, maybe this isn't worth doing. 
Uh, so even two statements uh, that are logically logically equivalent um, for natural language users can have different uh, conversational implicatures uh, is the fancy term for it. Um, and uh, that's, it doesn't strike me as, as, as you know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe that's not logical. Maybe that's not, you know, Spock, Vulcan, um, um, uh, rational, but uh, that's how we use language. That's how all of us use language. And so I think that a lot of the ways in which we, um, I, I, well, let me, let me, let me frame it this way. I think a lot of the literature on how um, we have these cognitive biases, these, these heuristics that maybe uh, make us depart from um, neoclassical rationality, uh, that, that doesn't show that the fact that we make those kinds of choices means that they're not our own choices. They're still our own choices. And maybe it's precisely because we are limited in these ways that it, it makes them even more <laughs> our own choices. Um, right. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. like, as I was reading that in the book, and also as you're talking here, the, the economic concept of sort of like asymmetric information always pops into my mind. That is to say, some people might look at, and it's kind of back to your point, too, right? Maybe people don't have the full context of what's actually going on. But if you actually look at a situation, often people are making a, a sort of like a quote, unquote, rational decision in terms of what they think might benefit the most or what where the costs are lower and the benefits are higher. But in reality, maybe they don't have a certain piece of information, for example, that might actually tilt their equation. So, you know, all that to say that that would be a genuine choice, but an outsider might say, well, why, why would they make that choice, right? That's not rational. But in a way, again, back to that effect that happens in the psychological way we make decisions, it might just be what appears to be the good choice at that time for, for, for various reasons, as you said. Yeah, and and you're and you're right, uh, and I go into this a little bit uh, in terms of like uh, information asymmetries or, or lacking of information. It's like uh, you know John Stuart Mill's classic uh, bridge example. It's like if I don't know that the bridge is dangerous, but I you know I assume it, it's uh, perfectly safe to cross. It may be okay for you to temporarily uh, prevent me from crossing it simply because uh, it's like, look, Bill, I imagine you would not have made that choice uh, if you knew the uh, the full reality of the situation. So I, I do make that distinction between um, sort of soft and hard paternalism, soft paternalism being uh, situations in which uh, you likely would not have made a choice if you had the information at hand. Um, yeah. Right. And then the last one. It's okay to make bad choices if those bad choices do not impose undue costs on others without their consent. So I think this is one of the areas you talked about the last one. Genuine did a lot of lifting there. I think this is where undue costs and uh, consent sort of does a lot of lifting, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. Uh, I, I try to make it uh, more difficult on myself in this chapter. I think we uh, classical liberals and libertarians would say, hey, it would be great if we had a society where um, people could just absorb the full costs of their own individual choices without, um, uh, you know, as it were, imposing them on others, right? Um, but uh, I guess I go a little non-ideal theory here uh, and say, well, that's not really the world we live in. We live in a world where, yeah, even though uh, we acknowledge that maybe somebody has, has made some really bad choices that they're responsible for, we're not just going to leave them to die in the street. So uh, sort of my working assumption for that, uh, for that chapter is that we do have maybe enforceable obligations um, I, libertarians are going to bristle at this, but let's just say, you know, I'm trying to make it difficult here. Um, you know, let's say we have these enforceable obligations to help people, even if they have made bad choices that harm themselves. Well, you know, someone might come along and go, well, if we, uh, if we bear these costs uh, of other people's bad choices, maybe we should prevent people from having the freedom to make those choices. So it wouldn't be um, a paternalistic argument. 
for uh, for preventing their freedoms. It would be um, a social cost argument uh, that you know they're imposing these uh, these costs on others. So my way uh, of sort of addressing that is to try to say, well, okay, let's you know, assuming we do have these obligations to help those who uh, fault, you know, through their own fault have, have harmed themselves, uh, there may be ways around that where we don't have to restrict freedoms. Maybe we require mandatory insurance. Maybe we um, pay people not to engage in bad activities. Uh, so it's really an exploratory chapter, and I sort of end it jo- end that chapter jokingly by saying uh, I probably offended everybody here at some point. Which maybe uh, <laughs> maybe that makes the most sense. If, if nobody's entirely satisfied, maybe that's the uh, the right way to go. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And actually, I, I was wrong. I misspoke earlier. There is actually one more pillar to your argument. I think it ties in obviously nicely because that's the way you ordered it in the book as well. I think we can bridge right into it's okay to make bad choices if restricting the freedom to make those bad choices would raise undue costs or harms to others we aim to benefit. So I think this one's very interesting and tied into what you were just talking about as well. So there's all kinds of things that, you know, people, you know, if only there were a law to stop this, and yet often the law becomes the cudgel that's worse than whatever it's attempting to cure. So I think we've seen that with the war on drugs. Pretty much when there's a war on anything that's declared, it, it ends up being a disaster in my in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the war on drugs would be a great example of that. It's like, you know, granted, yeah, some people have done, you know, add, you know drug addiction. It's done some horrible things. That I'm, I'm not denying that. But attempts to use the force of the state to prevent it, arguably, this is an empirical point, but I think maybe uh, it, it, it seems right to me, has done much more harm than the drugs themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, especially given the availability of options for 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 addiction, where it's like you know you don't have to. Why are we throwing people in cages? Why are we you know spending all of this focus and attention and you know having you know raids, no-knock raids, and having, uh, you know, civil asset forfeiture, kinds of, you know, things like this, which, you know, I get into like sort of some public choice issues basically in that chapter where it's just like, well, you know, there's not the perfect state that's going to like, you know, uh, costlessly or, or harmlessly address uh, what I think are some very real issues uh, in terms of things like opioid addiction and things like that. Um, but sometimes the uh, so-called cure is worse than the disease. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned sort of the war on drugs. I think, you know, the, the lowest hanging fruit example, to be fair, uh, is, is sort of like how marijuana was treated so high on the schedule in the United States, right, or is still treated. I actually haven't checked into that as a schedule one or whatever the case may be. But, you know, I think that's a perfect example, right, of restricting freedom, uh, you know, to, to basically punish people for bad choices. It's, it's raising undue costs or harm to them, I think, if, you know, you get caught with a bag of marijuana and you end up spending time in jail and losing wages, maybe losing social status, having a hard time to find a job after something happens to your family, and then we all, you know, tie that back to maybe some joints and a bag of marijuana. I think that's a really good example for your chapter there, right? Well, if I could shamelessly pitch a a chapter that I actually uh, co-authored with uh, Andrew uh, Jason Cohen um, in a uh, Rutledge compilation on mass incarceration, we talk about sort of all of these un- well, you know, I think they're. We, we try to make clear like all of these other costs that are uh, are are out there for, uh, you know, that are associated with some of these uh, paternalistic laws that are crim- not just laws but criminal laws. Like mm-hmm. something that you is largely self harmful is not just you know you don't get you don't just get a fine for it. You you know you could go to jail, right? You go to prison for it. 
mm-hmm. uh, and just sort of all of the harms that it does. It's like, well, you know, if you are you know, by by your own premises as a paternalist, you should not support criminalized paternalistic laws at, at the very least, you, you know, because that actually harms the person more than just letting them be free to engage in what, you know, what you might want to prevent. Um, so, yeah, um, that that's uh, that's definitely an issue. No, that's actually an excellent point. I think it's often uh, understated, like, you know, because people gloss over, oh, something shouldn't be allowed, right? It's like, well, what are you talking about here? Are you talking about a municipal fine? Or are you talking about getting federal law involved and putting people through a court system and getting that whole system started too, right? So even if someone is dedicated to, for instance, having marijuana banned from the streets, they should probably take a closer look at that for sure. I would agree with that. Yeah. And and think, you know, and, and on their own premises, think of really clever ways to like garnish a person's salary or wages uh, rather than going through that whole process where where, you know, a person can refuse the fine and then end up going to prison anyway. Right, exactly. And actually, I just want to ask before we move on to sort of tie up things in, into a nicer bow here, what, what, what's your favorite chapter, either either to work on or, or the chapter or the argument you think should be repeated the most? Like when, when you look at the whole book, obviously you're, you're proud of the whole book. And again, I encourage everyone to take a look at it. You obviously think everything's important in there. But if you kind of pick one or two that you, don't, you, you point to and you say, you know what, that one was fun to write. And I think it's a really great argument. What, which one was those be, would those be? That, that, that's a great question. I, I, I actually was thinking about this before, and I, I think it's my chapter four, to be honest. Um, in, in some ways, I, I think it really gets to the gist of what I think is wrongful about not just paternalistic coercion, but unjustified coercion uh, in general. Um, uh, and it's also, uh, I'm proud to have it in print because I was never able to get um, an article version of it <laughs> published. It usually got shot down. So I'm glad now I was able to get my point out there in print because I think it's one that, um, you know, it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a very it's easy but still subtle distinction. And I think it needs more attention in the literature, to be honest, because I think that um, a, a lot of my argument ends up hanging on uh, this distinction between um having decisive reason to accept a rationale for coercion versus lacking decisive reason to reject a rationale for coercion. Uh, And sometimes I'll sound like I'm beating a dead horse, but I think it's really a distinction that needs more attention. So I would say that's my favorite chapter, uh, but to some readers, it may be the most obscure chapter too. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was very good as well, and I, I do enjoy the argument. And and I should say, like, before we move on to our formal wrap-up here, I, I, lots of arguments here are, you know, on the individual level, which makes total sense because we're talking about individuals making choices, bad or, or whatever else. But I really like, as I, re- you know, I read through your material that, and especially when we consider that classical liberal angle, there's a lot to be said here about, you know, why it's okay to make bad choices, almost in the broader sense, too, sort of that John Stuart Mill sense, too, right? You know, the, the idea that it's it's an unavoidable part of a liberal society or culture, if that's what people want, right? The freedom to experiment and test, in other words, is not and necessarily cannot be restricted to just when we, even people like you and I, think it's a good choice being made, Right. Yeah, no, totally. And if I if I ever have the chance to do a second edition of the book, um, I would like to maybe include a section on um, a, a lot of cool stuff in the recent entrepreneurship literature on the value of failure, right? And how failing at something can actually, in the long run, make you much better off. Um, because uh, you know, for most people, your first dream isn't your best dream. Uh, and if you are radically successful at the first thing you want to do, you may end up foreclosing other things that you would have been even you would have enjoyed even more and flourished even more and made the world even better, uh, things like that. So failure uh, can be extremely valuable, uh, not just for you, but as an example to others. 
Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I would like to maybe flesh that out a little bit more uh, in, in the, uh, in the first chapter about, you know, uh, those quote bad choices, those, those, you know, the, the, you, you learn from them in so many cases. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's why I'm always troubled when I see sort of like a uh, one of those sort of tales or mythologies about a billionaire, millionaire, successful business person or even a successful person in like, a you know, in a civil society way, someone the head of a charity or something like sometimes you get that sort of watered down version of, you know, they did this in high school, they dreamt of this and look at them now. And in reality, all of those people, I can virtually guarantee you would have uh, you know, a lot of time to point out their failures and the mistakes they learned from that actually led to where they were at after. Yeah. And um, I'm actually reading a book right now called uh, Range uh, by David Epstein, which is uh, about why uh, a generalist approach is typically better in life uh, uh, than, uh, you know, this hyper-specialized approach where it's like, well, we've got to te- teach the kid to play violin from age three or else they're never going to learn. Right. You know, it's like, uh, actually, uh, exploring lots of different things in your in your younger years uh, sets you up for uh, success uh, uh, much much more clearly. Like right. not everyone's Tiger Woods, right? Yeah, B- Benjamin Franklin smiles upon that part of the discussion for sure. Bill, I'm going to move us to our formal wrap up. Let me, see, you know, in each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word. So let me see. You know, we've talked about a lot. And here's where we try to bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of our main question today. So let me officially ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on why it's okay to make bad choices? In other words, if you could sum up everything we discussed today and even your book with one or two or maybe just a handful of takeaways, what would you ultimately want someone to take away from everything? I think, yeah, this might be a little too uh, facile, but I, I think the main takeaway is it, it's somebody else's life isn't your business. You know, it, it's ultimately theirs. You can be there. You can be a, you can be there to listen. You can be there to support. You can be there to, uh, you know, maybe suggest, hey, you're, uh, you know, how are you doing? You know, like maybe, you, you know, you're, you're going down a, a different path here. Um, but uh, I think the main takeaway is that the, the things in our individual lives where we want to look out for each other, that's great. I think as friends, we, we, you know, we have to be a little bit paternalistic, I think sometimes in our private lives. And, uh, I, you know, there are points in my life where I've appreciated being the recipient of maybe some private paternalistic interventions, but that's because that's my friend. That's a trusted person who's looking out for me and knows me. Um, as opposed to saying, okay, well, let's try to map all of those very personal relationships and, and, and values and emotions. Let's try to map that onto this impersonal authority like the state uh, or the legal uh, institutions. Uh, and I think it's like, that's a non sequitur. Okay. The, the fact that maybe in our own personal lives and our relationships, there's a lot of paternalism going on. That's actually quite, you know, at, at, at least um, um, not, uh, I think wrongful and maybe sometimes helpful uh, that can't just, you can't just assume that we can map that onto some kind of greater uh, or larger uh, impersonal um, course of authority that uh, where all kinds of things can go wrong. Um, so yeah, I think that's one of my takeaways. Great. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. So Bill Glaud, thank you very much for joining me on the curious task today. Thank you so much for having me. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. 
The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Mm-hmm.